tonight I thought we would talk a little bit about killing giants. thought that'd be good. We'll talk about 1 Samuel 17. If you want to go in your Bibles, let's go to 1 Samuel 17 to a really good story. Dolly, I know you love this story. I love it. We've all heard it from our youth, and it's, uh, it's David and Goliath. And there's some truths in here. Uh, the resume of a giant killer. If you want to kill giants, these are some things that should be on your CV as you get ready to go. While you're looking there, I want to read to you uh, a verse. And I use this verse as the... Um, magnifying glass to focus the whole passage under this magnifying glass. 1 John 4.4 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because He, listen to me now, He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. So as we talk about David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, Let's keep in mind, we're talking about it through the lens of focus of greater is he that is in us than he who's in the world. I'm going to read to you. As I was preparing for this, I noticed there were some big Hebrew names and words in here. So you guys are just going to have to forgive me up front. Start reading in 17.1 and I'm going to work through this as we survey the entire chapter and talk about several points to... Uh, to understand, we may jump around. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Succoth and Azekah, and Ephes Diamond, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Verse 4 says, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So it goes on and talks about Goliath and how big he was and how much his armor weighed and how much his spearhead weighed and all the big things about their champion. It tells you a lot about him. And how he would taunt the Hebrews every day for 40 days. And he would walk back and forth in the front of the battle array and talk about this. And, and, and gloat and challenge and threaten. In verse 10 he said, and, I, and the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What Saul didn't know, and what all of Israel didn't know on this day, was back in chapter 16. They had not read 1 Samuel chapter 16 at that point, and so they didn't know this. They didn't know that Samuel had gone into the little town and seen Jesse and his eight sons. And they didn't know that Samuel had fallen in love with several of the sons and wanted to anoint them as king, but God had said no. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we haven't got the boy up here yet. He's still out there with those few sheep. Go get him. And the eighth boy was David. 
And so what the Philistines and Israel and Goliath didn't know was the little boy was the anointed future king of Israel. Israel had gone from judges with no king to 1 Samuel, which was man's king, and they're getting ready to move into 2 Samuel to God's king. And David was God's pick. He was God's king. Because David had a heart after God's own heart. Let me read to you. In verse 12, it says, Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years, in the days of Saul. So Jesse was an old man in the days of Saul the king. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. And the three oldest followed Saul, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Verse 17. Then Jesse said to his son, David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captains of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. All right, so first thing you need to have on your resume And I don't care if you're the anointed king of Israel. You need to be a man under submission. You need to be a man with a submissive heart. Here's the little shepherd boy who is the king of Israel. His daddy was in the tent when it happened. Knew he was going to be the king of Israel. Told him, get the bread and the cheese and run to the line and take this to our boys, and their captains. Do it now. Just like a pizza delivery boy. A little bread and cheese. He was taking cheese pizzas to the front line. Here's the king of Israel. He's a Domino's delivery guy. Basically, yeah. My words. My words. But that's what happened. If you want to be a giant slayer, have a submissive heart. Numbers 12.3. And Moses was the meekest man on all the earth. There was no meeker man than Moses. Did that mean that Moses was weak when he's meek? Does meek mean weak? No. Meek is power under control. When you get a mighty stallion, and you can break it and put a saddle on it, and you can put a rein a bit in its mouth and a rein around its neck, and you can control all that power, does that mean that stallion is weak? No. It means that it is under control. Moses was a meek man. Under control by whom? The living God. So here's a man under submission. You remember how Cornelius the centurion was under submission? He said, I'm under authority, and I understand authority, and I have others under me. And all you have to do is speak the word, because I understand authority. If God wants to make a giant killer, the first thing he does is teach him how to be under his authority and be meek. Does that make sense?
All right, we're off. I'm, I'm, I'm warmed up now. Let's go. I hope you guys are getting warmed up. Verse 20. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. He was obedient. He was quickly obedient. But what I want to point out to you is it says here, so David rose early. He rose early. Now, I don't expect if there's any young people around, any teenagers, that I would get an amen out of that. They wouldn't come from that quadrant, I'm sure. But David rose early. What does that mean? Did he have a sleeping problem? Was he an insomniac? No. David rose early because he was a disciplined man. He had been getting up with those sheep, I don't know, all his life. And he wasn't afraid to rise early and go to the job. He wasn't afraid to rise early and get about his father's work. He wasn't afraid. So in the, in the uh, application for a giant killer today, he's a disciplined man. He's not only a man under authority, he's a man under discipline. And he's not afraid to work. And he's not afraid to get up and labor in prayer, in the study of the scripture, in praise, in creating and writing and singing his psalms. David is a man under discipline. So resume point two, if you're going to be a giant killer, not only must you be a man submissive that the Lord can use, you have to be a man who is disciplined and can control his own self. A man under authority and a man who crucifies the flesh. I like this next one. It says here, And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the battle and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array army against army and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. And then David spoke to the men who stood by him. He wanted to hear that again. He said, do what? Did, did you say the king would give a daughter and exempt me from taxes in Israel? Did, let's, do what? What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done. Yep, mm-hmm, that's right. For the man who kills him. All right, here we go. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, 
Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Was Eliab happy about David being there, on the front line, stirring up the men, asking stupid questions? I mean, I know how big brothers are. He was not happy with David. He said, what about your pitiful few little sheep? Who's watching them? Why aren't you at home with those little sheep? They're not that many. He was putting him down. He was putting him down. You're not much of a shepherd. You can't even keep up with a few sheep. Why are you up here stirring up the troops? I know your heart. See, I live with you. I'm your brother. We slept in the same tent for years, and I know what kind of a rascal you are. How many times does the devil come at you through the people who love you the most because they know you the best? And you probably deserve it because they know you. And the devil knows he can trip you through your loved ones because they're telling you the truth. You might not listen to him if he showed up in a red suit with a tail, but you'll listen to your wife when she reminds you of yesterday. And when he wants to trip you up, sometimes he'll come at you with somebody you love a lot. But now here's the thing. I want you to see what David did. And David said, what have I done? Is there a cause? And then he turned from him, from Eliab, toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. So David heard everything his brother had to say to him about his rotten spirit, and his little sheep, and his nosy attitude. And then he turns around and talks to the guys. Is it true he's really going to give us tax relief and I get to marry his wife? Are you serious? So he quit listening. To the voice of ridicule. And he turned from the voice of ridicule. And he got focused on the prize. Do you see that? Boy, this is going to get good here in a minute. He got focused on the prize. What was the prize again? It was exemption from your daddy's house won't pay any taxes in Israel. How cool would that be? How many of us would go out and fight a giant today, right? Oh, yeah. And you get to marry the king's pretty daughter? He got his eyes on the prize. How important is that in the application of a modern-day giant killer, not to listen to the ridicule of the enemy, but to focus on the prize at the end. So what did Abraham do? He walked in the land as a stranger, and he looked toward that city not made with human hands, knowing that its builder and maker was God. Because he had an eye focused on the prize. Abraham spent his whole life hearing about the promise. And he had his eyes focused on the prize. So if you're going to be a giant slayer, one of the things you have to do is focus on the prize. You have to focus on the prize. Because the enemy is going to try to distract you, and he's going to try to thwart you, and he's going to try to discourage you, and he's going to try to anger you, and you have to turn away from that and say... Tell me about the prize again. Because I really want to hear more about the prize. That's what he did. Giant killer. Focusing on the prize.
Now when the words in verse 31, which David spoke, were heard, they reported them to Saul. Listen, see, Saul finds out that there's somebody stirring up the camp. And he sent for him. And then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Most people think David was around 14 to 16 years at this point. 14 to 16 years old. Sounds about right. They think they know everything at that point and are unstoppable and are bulletproof. And it's, yeah, I'm saying, yeah, he was probably that. Let no man's heart fail. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard. Listen to this. I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing as he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I think that's a really interesting passage. How old do you think David was when he killed a lion? I mean, he's 14 to 16 here. It could have happened last week. Probably didn't. So he's somewhere 13, 14, 15 years old. He killed a lion. Now, I'm not talking little old lion. 600-pound lion. Carry off a gazelle. Lion. Bear. Bear came out, was it Elisha? The bear came out against and, and killed all those people? Was it Elisha or Elijah? Elisha. Big bear. How did he do that? Well, he had a sling. The Bible doesn't say. You can meditate over it. He probably hit the thing with a rock and knocked it silly and went up to it and grabbed it and killed it. Same method he used on Goliath. But he used that method, maybe. Still, how many of you guys would want to fight a lion? Not so many. Little boy fought a lion. Here's the point. If you're going to be a giant killer in the field when no one's around and it's only you and God and the enemy, how you handle that enemy and how you fight that battle qualifies you to fight God's battle. I don't know what it is in your lives that you struggle with. I don't know about this weight and the sins that so easily beset all of us. I don't know what your personal stronghold and affliction and familiar sin is. I have no way of knowing. don't want to know. You know. What I want to say to you is this. If you're going to kill a giant, you need to kill that first. Have the private battle that no one sees. 
Because it gives you confidence to fight God's battle later. And he won't elevate you and promote you to fight his battle till you have won this battle. Does that make sense? You have to win your personal battle before God will take you and use you to fight his public battle. Verse 37, and Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Verse 38, it says, So Saul clothed David with his armor. And he put a bronze helmet on his head. And he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. If you're going to be a giant slayer, if you're going to kill giants, what you need to have on your resume, folks, is you dress, you dress the same way every day. You don't dress one way Monday through Friday or Saturday and then put on something else for Sunday and act like this guy. You wear the same clothes every day. He couldn't wear Saul's armor. He wasn't the size of Saul. There was nobody else in Israel as tall as Saul. Saul was the natural foil to Goliath. And yet Saul was cowering where David was standing up. Saul, I guess it was to maybe alleviate some of his guilt, tried to put his best armor on the boy. And David looked around and said, I can't wear this. This is not for me. I am not that man. And I won't wear it, and he took it off. So sometimes when the compromiser comes to you and says, wear this, it'll help you. You'll be protected. You need to step out of that and step into what God called you to be and walk away from what's good toward what's best. And the hard part about it is this. Church, sometimes it's hard to tell between what's good and what's best until you test it. And David said, I haven't tested this. How can I know if I can use it? And he took it off. Okay? Giant slayer. Submissive. He gets up early. He's disciplined. I'm trying to remember. He, uh, he keeps his focus on the prize. Doesn't he? He keeps his focus on the prize. He, uh, he fights his private battles and wins his private battles before he fights the public battle. And he doesn't try to be something he's not. And he dresses consistently. He doesn't put on another man's clothes to pretend he's that man. He is this man. Giant killer. And he took his staff in his hand in verse 40 and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand. I've heard this a lot. This is, this, I've heard a lot of things preached. This is a great chapter of Scripture. 
You can, you can preach a lot of stuff out of it. The five smooth stones, well, he had four brothers. Duh. Maybe, I don't know, but I don't, I don't think that was it. I don't think that was it. I think he was, if, if he could tell you about his resume and why he had five stones, I think he would tell you, I didn't know how much it was going to take to get the job done. I had no knowledge in advance that God was going to guide the very first stone into his head. I've been in the field. I've missed before. I took enough with me that I knew I could do it. If God gave me any room at all, I, ha I didn't want to fail on my side of the equation. I took enough. So sometimes there's an enemy that's afflicting us spiritually. Maybe it's prayer is your first stone. And it doesn't seem to be working. So you pull out the second stone and it's prayer and fasting. Have you considered that? Maybe this enemy goes away with prayer and fasting. Or perhaps you pull two or three or four of you together in a season of prayer because you can't kill it with a stone in prayer. You can't kill it in prayer and fasting. You have to get together with your brothers and humble yourself and confess and talk about the problem and pray together fervently. Or maybe you have to get into a season of praise because God loves the praise of His people. Maybe it's not just prayer and fasting. Maybe it's prayer and fasting and praise. But there's another stone. And what God is telling me to tell you about the five stones is that David was a persistent man. Giant killers are persistent. They don't give up with the first stone. They keep pulling stones out of the bag. And they keep throwing the stones at the giant because a persistent giant killer is a dangerous giant killer. Persistence will take you a lot further than talent ever will. He was a persistent man. I'm about to finish here. Don't say amen on that. That would really hurt, like right here. Don't do that. Verse 40, So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And so there's a great rout, and the Israelites did that. You know what happened to the head of Goliath, of Gath? Does anybody remember what happened to the giant's head? If you read on, the Bible will tell you, David took the head home with him, and he put it on a stake, and he put it up in his house. Now, I don't know how that worked. 
That probably stunk a little bit. I'm just saying he might have, he might have cleaned it up. I, who can say? But the point is, let's don't get caught up in all that mess. Giant killers have memorials to God. And they remember the little God kisses that Kathy calls them. Kathy Elrod calls them God kisses. They remember their God kisses. Well, this was a big hug. God had allowed David to kill, I mean, David to kill Goliath. And so every day he could wake up and look at that big old stinking head on that stake and say, God is good all the time. You know, there's flies circling. It don't matter. God is good all the time. He could remember the victory. And that's very important when you're a giant killer because there's always another giant. There's always another giant. More importantly, the head signifies authority. And spiritually, David was validating that the head of his enemy, his enemy's authority was broken and had no place. The enemy had no authority here. The enemy's head is on a stake in the corner of my house. In my own home, the enemy has no authority. His authority is gone. It's broken. And every day, David could get up and point at that nasty, stinking, rotting head, maybe, and say, you have no authority here. I cut your head off by the power of God. You can't hurt my family. You can't hurt my nation. And you can't hurt me. Praise God. So a giant killer creates memorials to help him in his battle. Let's pray. Dear Father, I, I thank you for the opportunities you give us. For the chance to be here with my church brothers and sisters. And open up the word. Talk about something that's so familiar to us and provide a different light to it. Dear Jesus, thank you for that chance. Lord, would you so use this in someone's heart today? I know I, know I talked to somebody. I know there's a reason I'm here instead of at some beauty pageant somewhere. Would you allow your word to do what it, only it can do? You tell us it doesn't return void. You tell us it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to separate between soul and spirit. Joint and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, would you so work in us. That our hearts would burn to be giant killers. That we wouldn't listen. To those who would discourage. But we would turn away and fix our eyes on the prize. That we would remember the victories you've given us in the past. And that Lord. We wouldn't wear somebody else's clothes but we would be your man all the time. In Jesus' name, amen.